0: Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, Senior Film Writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is filmmaker Maureen Judge, whose documentaries include Living Dolls, In My Parents' Basement, and the TV series Heart of a Poet and Family Secrets. Her latest project, My Millennial Life, tracks the struggles of 20-somethings in the 21st century. It had its world premiere in Toronto last month, and now it's available online at tvo.org, and you should check it out. Maureen went big, choosing Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, three feature films spanning 18 years in the lives of its creators and its characters. In 1996's Before Sunrise, Ethan Hawke's Jesse and Julie Delpy's Celine are 20-somethings wandering around Vienna after meeting on a train. In 2005's Before Sunset, they're reunited in Paris nine years later. And in 2014's Before Midnight, we catch up with them on a vacation in Greece after another nine years. Created in close collaboration with the actors, it's a remarkable accomplishment in filmmaking and storytelling, and the world is better for having these movies in it. Uh, incidentally, this is always implied on the show, but I beg of you with this episode, if you haven't seen these movies, do not listen to this podcast until you have. Trust me, it's so much better that way. This is someone else's movie.
1: I guess you um, asked, what's my favorite film? And actually, I have a number of favorite films, so I don't really have one favorite film. I, you know, I have different moments when I have favorite films, or sure. different films for different moments, because um, there are so many great films. But I um, was really interested in the Before trilogy by Linklater because um, there's so much fun to watch. They're so full of love. They're so full of pain, and they're so they almost cross over as documentaries. So for me, that is like a they're like a perfect film. But there's three of them, so they play with time. They play with um, reality in the moment, and I love that combination. And I also loved his recent film. Um, So it was uh, Boyhood, which is kind of like the culmination of the three uh, before films. So I I kind of thought rather than talking about Boyhood, it would be really great to talk about the before films. Okay.
0: I mean, Linklater is one of those filmmakers who I find endlessly fascinating. Even the films he makes, with the exception of The Bad News Bears, which I can't enjoy at all. Even the films that don't fully succeed are successful. There's stuff in them for me every time. He's just one of those filmmakers that I... There's there's Linklater, there's Soderbergh. Um, that's probably it. Like <laughs> the, the, the two American filmmakers who are people who've sort of defined their form so well. Uh, Noah Baumbach maybe is, is another one. Absolutely. Where these is. are people who do the thing they do. Yeah. And they do it better than anyone else to the point where when people try to do it, they probably shouldn't. It's just when when they're you can feel an interloper. You can feel, oh, that would be great if Soderbergh was making this, but it's this guy. And with Linklater, the, the before trilogy, there's, there are movies that have had sequels. There are movies that have spent a lot of time between installments. And there are stories with recurring characters. And you could argue that you know, Truffaut's Antoine Doinel films are essentially a version of this sort of storytelling i would say romare is closer romare too yeah well yeah. romare in, maybe in execution and and Truffaut in terms of working with the character over time oh character over time okay but, but certainly but,
1: romare yeah uh, i think yeah. romare and and also actually even Godard a little bit mm-hmm. um because he he has recurring stars and sure yeah. love and life and sort of in modern life and modern vision so but yes yeah. i i think you're right Truffaut for sure um, but also, another American who has um, done it is actually Julie Delphi.
0: Oh, she yes, also, the two, she days two days films. Two yeah.
1: films, so, which is very much, I would say, I don't want to say it's, a, it's not really a ripoff, but a, a tribute or an homage or whatever, a learning experience sure. maybe from working with Linklater.
0: Yeah, and yes. certainly if anybody is going to try to do it, someone who has literally already done it with him, that's perfect. And I mean, the idea of her making her films... It's the first one is two days in Paris, yeah, and the next and, one was two days in New York, right? Yes, right. New York is the second one. And this the separation was something like four or five years, I think, between the two.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they are interesting, and I I love watching her cast herself in her own films because you get a completely different side of her that other filmmakers just don't seem interested in trying to find. Yeah, um, and in as much as as she is Celine in um, and, uh, in, in, the in the before, before trilogy. trilogy, yeah. She's also very not. <laughs> the, the the real Julie Delpy, I think is a lot weirder and, and goofier than Selena's.
1: is. Yeah, although I don't know, you know, just I just rewatched them for uh, uh, the for this, discussion yeah. for this. And um, it's really interesting watching because it takes place over 20 years, yeah. basically, and to watch them grow and watch the growth of the characters, which also, to me, feels like the growth of the actors. And she becomes a much... I mean, she starts out... She's quite whimsical, although she's always very strong and has strong ideas, but by the end, she also has bitterness as part of her personality. Sure. And, you, and and I think you really see that um, as not only as... Uh, Celine but probably all I, I don't know that It's kind no. of unfair but I felt like she's also one of the writers of the script uh, sure. with the last two films um she's Julie Delphi is also one of the writers mm-hmm. so I feel like she's bringing her personality into it too and you can sort of feel the maturation but also with that maturation of voice um of her the voice of her character also comes a lot of bitterness yeah and I thought that was quite interesting and fairly typical of uh modern uh women. I think women of her generation and her age. She's Gen X and yeah. I think you know not sort of knowing where to go and where their place is exactly and what the place is and knowing that they should have a place and that they do have a place but really where do they go? Where's the future? Um I found it um I related to it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the whole notion of love and what love means, I um but I would say that Before Sunrise is probably the easiest one to take. Sure, yeah. It's full of whimsy. It's like, it's they're enclosed in a, a wonderful bubble and you have, uh, it's just, they have no place that they have to be. Yeah. Basically, and there's something very um, youthful about it. And, of course, I just made a film about young people, so it was also, um, that also inspired me to want to
0: talk about it okay well certainly before sunrise is the one with the most potential like it's bursting with potential both in terms of the story that you're seeing the characters you're meeting and the film itself because this was that point in in linklater's career too where anything could happen Like he'd made little films and this was a, what this was after Days and confused which established him as this amazing multi-character story juggler who could create period and and, and make a snapshot of the world that he remembered. Uh, in the 70s, suddenly he's making something that's absolutely contemporary and, and completely of the moment to the point where it's people talking about things that happened the week they shot the film. It's all relevant experience and, and Jesse yammering on about philosophy and Celine being a little more clear-headed and just amusing herself with this American kid. And all of these things, it's... All three of the films in very different ways are sort of about the way the world was when they shot them. And the first film, it's the Clinton era, it's peacetime, the wall's down, they're in Vienna, it's gorgeous, they're beautiful, everything is possible. And you can walk away thinking, oh, they never saw each other again, or, and they lived happily ever after, and you're equally satisfied. That's the one time in this entire trilogy where there is no wrong answer everything is right you're absolutely right it is
1: just pure potential and it's pure potential for them too they're just starting to launch into their adulthood Mm -hmm. and nothing is stopping them and i think you see that actually from the very moment the film starts with the railway tracks yeah and it's so beautiful it's just it's just a beautiful image of these tracks going as the train goes and then we go into the train and we meet our characters and and the other lovely thing um it, which is kind of the foreshadowing to later although I don't know if um, Linklater actually knew that except that it's a comment on love is the older sort of middle they're not really middle aged, but they're probably in their fourth well middle age I guess yeah they're
0: middle they're Good. my <laughs> age they're <middle laughs> aged. that was so I'm I've got five years on
1: them. yeah they were about 21 but they're middle aged. so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but we see that middle aged couple fighting oh yeah which
0: is what draws
1: um, Celine to sit beside Jesse Initially, although we we learn later, of course, I think in uh, uh, before uh, sunset that actually, um, she had noticed him already. So, and I believed it, I found it very believable. And I think that that's also what's so wonderful about these characters, and in the first one, especially well, all of them, but here we, we really believe in their honesty, we believe in their. Um, naivete also. They're very naive. They'll pontificate about what... Well, uh, certainly, uh, Jesse pontificates all the time on different sort of theories of yeah. the world. And, but you love them anyway, and you really... It's a very visceral film. You really... Um, there's space, because they're walking, and a lot of um, traveling shots, and we travel with them, and we travel with their thoughts. And that's what I, I love so much. And it also reminded me a lot of Romare. Eric Romare's films which I I also love very much and um, they're very much about the modern time you know when they're shot they're Mm -hmm. about that time and place and they're about discussions and this film really has a lot of French influence on it in terms of I think Romare's influence probably I think of I don't know if you know The Green Ray
0: Mm, yes, I haven't seen it in
1: years. No, they're fine, but it totally reminded me where one of the it was shot in a documentary fashion, actually, with I think a four person, maybe five person crew. And um, but it was uh, this young woman in the the main character looking for love, you know, in the green yeah. ray. Because she, they find the green ray, at, she finds a green ray at the end, and that you know that's kind of the symbol of love. Well, where this film continues because it, it of course continues in time nine years later um they have to refine their love but they do automatically right away. Yeah. And I just um I really love that, but I also found that they were more lost characters before. They weren't they weren't sort of in a vacuum anymore in um before sunset. They were yeah. um well
0: they've existed. I mean, remarkably, I think for any film series, there is the sense that the years have weight on these characters each time we come back to see them again that's what so many sequels miss because they're so busy chasing the idea that audiences just want to see the same thing again somehow. We want to reconstitute. We want to recapture. We need the flavor to be the same. But where the Before trilogy really breaks rank with film grammar, and, and, or not grammar, but the expectations of the audience and, and, and what we think we want from a movie, is it tells us these people have not been happy together or apart And this is where they are now. And that just... I mean, I found before Sunset um, just shattering. And it, it has a happy ending. I mean, it actually ends well. But the tension of it for the entire experience of that film, I was just sort of on the edge of my seat praying that they wouldn't screw it up, that they would be able to pull it off and get together because that's all I ever wanted. I wanted to believe that they didn't missed the connection that they'd been together ever since and it wasn't until i saw the film that i realized i had actually been thinking about all these things that when i saw before sunrise in 1996 that had been my expectation and then immediately you're confronted with the fact that nope they they missed each other and they had perfectly good reasons and this is what happened and now they have to catch up in paris and fill in fill each other in on their lives and through the entire film you just you're so acutely or at least i was so acutely aware of watching people not touch about the space between them.
1: That's exactly what I want to say yeah. because hands are crucial Dangling. to that yeah. film. Like the hand moves comes back, can move and he and um, really Linklater does it so beautifully because we're never really we become aware of it but we're not aware that the director is really there. Yeah. None um, of these films this directed in it,
0: that way, it, even though they absolutely are.
1: absolutely they are and the other wonderful thing is that this all takes place in the space of a few hours Mm -hmm. and yet we get a whole lifetime yeah a whole nine years in that few hours without ever feeling there may be a few shots I think it's in Before Sunset that there's a few flashbacks but they're very and they're all in one place in the film Um, we don't really need them yeah We get the pain. We feel the pain that they've been through and that they're actually going through at the very... I mean, everything that we hear about the past, they're going through right now. Yeah. So I love that. It's like... It's like, and time is a, is very important for um, Linkletter and, and these films. Oh, yeah. And I love there's, in the in the last one, Before Midnight, um, just uh, talking about time, Jesse says, you know, I would love memories of the past if they didn't, you know, if they didn't bother us so much, yeah. if the past doesn't interfere with us. And, of course, there's a whole irony there, because memories are all about the past, but... Yeah. You know he's got this past that he can't get rid of, which is his first marriage and the child that he wants to be with, and you know how that sort of
0: yeah, yeah, and it's it's amazing that the film can introduce regret, basically as a plot point and and that's enough because if you're committed, if you I can't imagine what it would be like to walk into before midnight in nineteen or sorry in in two thousand and fourteen and not know the other films and see this one first. I mean, I'm sure people do. I'm sure that's how it works, because Ethan Hawke now is a draw for different reasons than he would have been in 2004 or 1996, and people will just, hey, it's that guy from The Purge. Let's see what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and experience this strange, melancholy meander through these characters' lives, who, well, clearly everybody else in the room knows. him. I mean, I'd love to be able to experience the film cold, truly cold, with no understanding of what was going on, just as a thought experiment. But because we have spent 20 years thinking about these characters now, um, and clearly so have Linklater and Hawk and Delphi we get to experience the richness of that knowledge. We get to be rewarded for simply knowing, oh yeah, Jesse wants his family together and this is the way he perceives his family. And he's an idealist, so of course he thinks it's possible. Right. You know, he, we know everything is informed, all of these these moments, that just the drive in the car with the kids in the back, and knowing that there's an absent child there, that's the subject of this entire conversation we've just seen and we've just watched him go back on the plane and we know what it's doing to Jesse. Choosing to set this movie in that moment, in that on that day, is just, it's ingenious, but at the same time, it's the only story I want to see because it's where all of the themes that they've been dealing with for three movies can come together and actually turn into narrative rather than conversation I mean there's an emotional driver
1: oh there's totally and even and actually um, the richness of the um, photography is also there in terms Mm -hmm. of some of the imagery more than in the other two films which I still love and and that is for example when we're driving in the car right after he's dropped off his son right after Jesse's dropped off his son and the family is driving um, to that bucolic (laughs) Greek chateau Um,
0: which they have to leave which, which you know the clock is ticking on that too. Which the clock, yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, they pass runes, you know. So I mean, there's kind of a foreshadowing there. They talk. Uh, Celine talks about her father having to kill uh, the cats, um, and that there were always only two cats. I mean, so that there are there are sort of um, inklings. She talks about her job that she doesn't. She's She's not sure what to do, and you know, should she leave it? Should she stay? What's going to happen to her past? What'll ha- I mean, all of that is also a foreshadowing uh, or, mm. of their, or a metaphor, really, in some ways, for the for the bigger life, which is their love, right? You know, and I I, I just find that he's it, it is very um, layered at this point. Yeah. That we wouldn't have, um, we wouldn't be aware of. But the other thing I found out, I found about the film Before Midnight is that it was so familiar to me as a somebody who's been married for a long time. It was just that kind of um, sort of deep love, and yet at the same time that sort of all of those kinds of resentments that somehow become an intricate part of that love. Right. And it's very hard sometimes at different points to um, detangle them. And sure. that's really what happens to them at the end when they have to kind of detangle them and... Um, figure out where is the love and where is this other stuff which is the day-to-day mundane, mundane um, parts of our lives. Yeah,
0: well there is a moment in in Midnight where when Celine and Jesse really fight, truly fight in a way that clearly has been coming for a very long time and that they've been willing to avoid and it's just, there's this moment when Ethan Hawke plays the hesitation and she leans into it and she goes ch- and, and Delpy charges forward with just in anger, not physically, but, but her delivery is the moment where she's not holding back anymore. And it is absolutely terrifying because it's so intimate and there's nudity and there's been intimacy and all of that other stuff. But the ferocity of someone who loves someone else, I'm screwing this up, the ferocity of a loved one. Deciding to keep going in a fight is something that people will have experienced, or hopefully, will you've experienced once or twice. Maybe you won't, but yeah. I, I I find it we've, hard to believe. We've I, all been there. Like, we've been. Anybody, if
1: you've been with someone for a long time, yeah. y- you've been there. Yeah, you've you been, know
0: what it's like when the resentments really turn into anger. Well, and, when you and, see it shifting.
1: And I thought it was stunning that she actually had her shirt down. That like, like she had open breast. She, I mean, she yeah. was she wasn't vulnerable, but she. Right. Uh, The the perception is ostensibly she's vulnerable, right?
0: Right. But it's also it's that level of intimacy that they have where it's no longer uh, a topless scene.
1: Exactly. You you've
0: you've been with this person with this body long enough that that's just how it is right now.
1: That's what it looks like. That's who it is. Absolutely. And that's also part of the problem. It's sure. like a mixture there, and you sort of see that. Yeah. Because at first, and their passion when they do actually, before this is actually before it gets really bad. Yeah. But when they do start almost making out, because really that that's almost the, it it does start to become like they're making love, and mm-hmm. it's so lovely. And then of course it breaks apart, and you can just feel it coming because they can't relax, they yeah. can't stop talking, they can't they can't just give each other the space that they need, that they actually did give each other. In um, Sunrise. Yeah. Which is so lovely because, of course, at the end, um, Jesse brings us back to that. Ethan Hawke brings us back to that with this kind of crazy um, author story of time travel. But she's able to kind of buy into that. Or I feel
0: she bought into that. I, I want to believe. I mean, I don't. I don't necessarily... Oh, this is where it all gets so weird for me. I don't know... Every time these films end, I don't know that I want another one because I'm satisfied. This is... If we yeah. never see these characters again, even at the end of Before Midnight, they're going to be fine. That I know it in my heart. Because Linklater loves them enough that he's not going to hurt them. Right. I think that's where it comes from. We see... Every movie is the story of how this couple gets stronger together. Yeah. It just doesn't immediately seem... They don't know it at the time. Right. So they're going to get through this fight and be better because they still remember what it is that they love about each other and that's again that's that beautiful ending where um, we are pulled away from them the film almost can't bear to leave them because that story's still going on
1: right and we look down yeah, and on it just them pulls sort of away. just a, just not really from a high high le-
0: height uh, yeah. but just a but in just yeah, a way it's... that it's like a little tap that says you can go home it's a you know we they'll take it from here right right but the the confidence to do that The confidence to trust that your act—well, not to trust your actors. At this point, I mean, he knows exactly. Linklater knows exactly what he's going to get out of these two people,
1: and they know too. And they must be collaborating through improvisation too. I mean, I feel that there's a lot of improvisation there.
0: Not as much as you would think, which really surprised me. Uh Um, uh, Linklater had said. I've asked him a couple. I've actually gotten to interview him a couple of times. Uh, oh yeah, no huge get. Love him.
1: I think uh, I would really like him too. He's, I just he's, feel he's just kind of there.
0: I the first time we met, well, we met in a hallway at TIFF once in the '90s. I think he was here. I think it was the year Days and Confused was playing Midnight Madness, okay. and I just said Midnight Madness, and he said eh, and that was it. We just walked past <laughs> each other, and I'd already seen the film, so it was fun. Um, first time we actually sat down was on September 10th, 2001. Uh, he had brought Waking Life and tape to TIFF and Waking Life has the scene where Jesse and Celine appear. Uh, Oh, okay. I haven't seen that actually. Okay. Well, The whole film is presented as a, it's a rotoscoped animation thing, the same thing he did with Scanner Darkly. Okay. And it's a philosophical head trip kind of movie, but there is a scene where Hawk and Delpy reprise their roles outside of the continuity of the Before trilogy. And so they have a scene where they just do what they do, and they're in bed together, and they're talking about philosophy. And in this version of the characters, they got together after Before Sunrise, and this predates um, Before Sunset by about right. four, three years. Three years, yeah. And in this version of their continuity, they're happy, and they're together, and I think they're supposed to be in the States, and they're just having a conversation, and it's just really nice to sit there and experience that. Them. Yeah. And I told him this, and I said, you know, like, I just, I didn't realize how invested I was in these characters getting together, but you just showed me that it can work for them. And he said, well, it isn't necessarily true. I mean, the format of the movie is that it's only a possible future. And it's like, I know, but you gave it to me anyway. Shut up. Let me enjoy this. (laughs) Uh, But he was really open to the idea of exploring it. He said he never really thought people would respond to it as much as they had, and that it was just this fluke that it landed right um, at the time that it did, because after Reality Bites, people were being hostile to Hawk, and he wanted to go off and do something that was human and small, and he didn't want to be an icon, he just wanted to be a guy. And they found Delphi, and it all just came together. This whole this whole thing about him just trying to, to sweep the accomplishments of Before Sunrise under the rug and just say, oh, it's just this little fun thing we did. But it clearly, I mean, just the fact that he did this sequence in Waking Life, he clearly wanted these characters in his life. He wasn't ready to give them up. Right. And so I think I begged him to do another one? I said, "Like, if, would it be possible to do a feature? Or oh, so this and, is oh, because no, of no. you? We've
1: well, got midnight. I would love to take uh, okay. I would love credit. to take credit, but No,
0: what he said was, everybody says that. Yeah. And so, eventually, they just, you know, you think you're giving him this incredible insight. Come on, make it happen. And he's like, no, no, I get this every 10 minutes. People keep telling me he wants to, they want to know what happened. Wow. And so, they eventually decided to do it but the there yeah the the way they did the second film was they emailed uh ideas around together and then wrote the script together i think in a single room or something in a hotel room the way they did the third one was they broke it by email again but they were doing entire scenes so they did uh they did do rehearsals and they did have some improvisation at that time but it was by the time he shot it. By the time they shot it, they needed to have the camera blocking and everything, so it was pretty tightly scripted. And it um, that process. I'm trying to get this right. That process was informed by Boyhood. Uh, Hawk told me this separately when Boyhood came out. I interviewed him, but not Link later, and he was talking about the way they did Boyhood, which was they would shoot for two weeks, the same two weeks every year, right. and just carve out that right, time in everyone's schedule. That. Yeah and they would come up with a notion of what was going to happen and meet for the first week would be about figuring out what the scene would be and how it would be played and what the dialogue would be and then how they'd shoot it and then by the time they did shoot it they were pages they had dialogue so it's improvised but not
1: well i did assume there would be pages sure because there there's too much i mean the camera tracks them and and they're walking
0: too far or i'm not sure how that was no it's incredibly complex uh, these long takes and longer once digital
1: comes into it too i felt that there there had to be some amount of improvisation because to memorize all of that it's not it's not recited like a play yeah it's not kind of acted like a play. It never feels like a theatrical um, endeavor. It really feels cinematic and feels like a film. So I figured there must have been some latitude that they had when they moved from subject to subject, but they must have their points. But maybe yeah. they had
0: a little more than just their points. Yeah, I don't think it was ever so specific as to, and you have to talk about Nietzsche when you get to this tree. Uh, although I wouldn't put it past that. <laughs>
1: That's so that. interesting. That tree that is where be... you
0: start the Nietzsche speech.
1: <laughs> well, what I really like, this is in uh, in uh, a Sunrise, where uh, um Julie Delphine goes, "Okay, we'll go this way now. We go this way yeah. now." And I and it was kind of like I totally bought it. But at the same time as a filmmaker, I'm thinking, "Hmm, maybe she's making sure that Ethan Hawke gets his cues." <laughs> I wasn't sure. But. um Can
0: you be too into the scene and not notice? Yeah.
1: Yeah, because where you it's are. such. Well, because they walk for so long mm-hmm. and it's so great. And you just don't see that in film anymore. And you don't, or very often anymore. It's not even about it anymore. But you don't see it that often. And also, when you do see it, it's often like the player which i loved, Mm. but were really really made aware of those traveling shots it's
0: a choreograph
1: it's so choreographed and um i would say even um in a lot of ways renee does that too they're much more choreographed kinds of tracking shots whereas this does not feel choreographed at all
0: yeah
1: and it's that's remarkable really
0: yeah it feels like you know, observation—it feels like life, and that—and you brought up Romare, and that's a perfect comparison too, because his feeling, his movies is much more important than watching them. I think he's much yeah. more interested in the atmosphere of emotion and and what's happening between people, more than what they're saying.
1: Right, uh, the backdrop informs what they're the. Informs the interaction. Yeah.
0: And in the moral tales, especially, all of his conversations are informed by desire. And what people really want isn't the thing that they're talking about. And that feels like before sunrise especially seems to resonate with that. It's the idea that all they want to do is be together. And it doesn't matter what they talk about. And they're learning about each other and they're talking about each other. But really, they're just enjoying that feeling of being together. And that's what happens when you click with someone. And then he picks it up so effortlessly in Sunset because all... Linklater does, because as soon as Jesse and Selene are together again, all the things, the questions that we have to ask are pushed aside for, how have you been? And it's just so much more important that they figure out if they can reestablish this vibe, which happens within the first 90 seconds of their meeting. Absolutely, it does.
1: And the interesting thing when you're saying that is that in um, Sunset... a lot of it's the looks Mm -hmm. and the not looking. Whereas in Sunrise, it's the hands, you know, connecting, like showing us, sort of guiding us and guiding them because they they want to touch each other, you know, when they're there. Whereas for Sunrise... They haven't quite, well, they do by the end, but they haven't quite got there yet. Yeah. So they're just sort of seeing how close they can get as opposed to actually touching. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a lovely kind of uh, transition that you capture in that period of time. Yeah,
0: and in a weird way, too, that level of the way the films, the, the way all three films treat intimacy. You know, in the first film, it's the thing they most desire. In the second, it's the thing they hope that they have. And in the third, it's weaponized. It's actually the thing that is working against them because they do know each other too well and they're ready to unleash that on each other and the question is whether or not they can get past that or get through it rather rather than past it. Right. And the idea that, you know, you look back and you've only really spent four and a half hours with these people but you've spent 20 years with them at the same time and that you can see, and he does this in Boyhood as well, Linklater uses time as a narrative engine in a way that almost no one else is willing to do because mm-hmm. it requires so much investment and so much preparation to have a throwaway glance pay off 20 years of tension uh, or to have the lines on Ethan Hawke's face represent the growth of the character. The first moments of Boyhood are, oh my god, Ethan Hawke as a baby. Like, How did that happen? <sighs> how am I seeing this incredible special effect of, of Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke being children and, well, they're 30, they're not that young, but of course they are because compared to who who we know them to be and they're people who've been in the public eye and grown into who they are. That idea to start making this movie and think, oh, don't worry, in 12 years you're going to be a totally different person (laughs) is, is just stunning, but of course he'd already started to experiment with that, with the before movies. Well,
1: he's a time
0: traveler just like Ethan Hawke. Yeah, he kind of is. <laughs> he kind of is. He, he it's has, exciting. He's only going in one direction, which is amazing. <laughs> but he's figured out a way to to kind of use our past knowledge of characters and actors as a as a component of the stories he's telling. And I don't I don't think anybody yet understands how monumental that is to to arrive at that because there's a um, um, the, well, there was a certain strain of backlash against boyhood where someone said, you know, a couple of critics at least were saying, you know, you could accomplish the same thing with with makeup. He didn't have to shoot it over 12 years. And it's like, no, he didn't have to. But you can't accomplish this with makeup. You need to see the time pass. You need to actually experience that flow. It's and, the
1: authenticity. Yeah. Honestly, it's authenticity. Yeah. And that's, again, the same thing in documentary. It's authenticity. And I think in drama, it, it, in this kind of naturalistic drama, yeah. it's very important. You know, and he also plays sorry another example you 're absolutely right, but he he kind of um does it in little ways, like even the way midnight starts or before midnight starts uh this time rather than the train at the beginning or the shots of Paris, which is kind of a different different opening, but mm-hmm. the third opening for the third film is. A little bit like the train moving forward, except that it's feet coming towards us, and it's a father and a son. So that also gives us the passage of time, and time is moving and moving forward. And then we come up, and then we see the young boy, who's his son and him. And you kind of you understand that brings time back to us because we realize, you know, from uh, sunset that here's the child that we heard about.
0: Yeah, Um, and you're confronted with also just the fact that hawk in those nine years has aged much more visibly but going to 30 from 30 to 40 is a bigger leap than going from 20 to 30 Uh, he's lost his baby fat he's got he's he's got sort of um, he's got that Nick Nolte thing going with his cheekbones where they're just becoming more prominent and making him more interesting as he gets older they both are actually they both do I found Celine
1: thinned he even says that you know you've gotten no actually she sorry she did in Sunrise she gained some she gained back her weight which I thought looked really good Mm -hmm. um, in the in uh, midnight. But yes, you do see that. Yeah. The other thing I really liked was the little boy is the little boy at first. He's a 12, I think he's 12, or he's 14 years old, I believe, there. And um, Ethan Hawke is playing Jesse, who's 41. And at first, the little boy is the little boy and the father's the father. But they reverse roles in that period, too. Yeah, very quickly. Very quickly, where the little boy becomes the father almost, and um, Jesse becomes the little boy. It's really interesting in their dialogue and what happens and confidence. And um, and then that sets the tone for us meeting him with Jesse uh, with Celine. Yeah. Where he, he has grown older, but in some ways he's still a little boy. Yeah. He's still youthful and idealistic and maybe not as responsible as he
0: could be. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's certainly the one who is less grounded in all three films. He's the one who... Um, he's the one who's the more impulsive of the three, and uh, of the three films, he's, he's the one who's the more impulsive of the two. And certainly, most of Sunrise is him winning over Celine right. with his his just his American bluster and, and his yeah. his Yankee optimism and all of that stuff that works against him in Midnight because she's tired of it. Um, even with the gap. Uh, you know, that's why they get together in Sunset. It's the He's willing to abandon everything about his life for a chance to put things back together. And in Midnight, we realize, no, it's taken all this time to start to put things back together. He destroyed his life to be with Celine, And it is the right choice. It's what he wanted, but the fact that it isn't brushed away, the fact that he is reckoning with these problems, that's, again, that's the sort of thing that a normal sequel wouldn't have. It would be resolved. There'd be, you know, it's the phone call instead of
1: an actual Instead of the phone
0: call that disrupts everything. Yeah.
1: That's the phone call. It's the phone call that kind of sparks the beginning of the fight. Right. Because she doesn't... But yes, as opposed to
0: resolving it. Every instinct to smooth over is less interesting. And so you just feel that they've steered away from it because they've gone to a more realistic dramatic portrayal. You know, for all the contra- for all the theatrical contrivances, the cinematic compression of several hours into 90 minutes or the what if this would happen thing that drives all of Sunset and where they're fantasizing about the couple that they might have been and the life they might have had and that just that heartbreaking little speech about how he was sure that he saw her in New York and she was there and it was her. It's just and it's on on the way to his wedding. Yeah, yeah. I I had this uh, the, we, we were in New York, um, Kate had a job in New York for a few months in 2007, uh, in the summer, and I couldn't join her full-time. I was here, flying back and forth. I went every weekend, as often as I could, to be there. And we should have stayed and we didn't. And it's fine, that's how it worked out. You know, the, the bottom fell out of the film journalism market six months later. There's no way I would be employable, I'd be working at a Denny's there now. Um and instead I came home and we, she came home, I stayed here and, and we ended up with a uh, completely different uh, future, right. essentially. Well, right. You we know, not the people we would have been had we, had we stayed there, but we go back as often as we can. And New York is, I mean, born and raised in Toronto, but New York is home and it always has been for some How period. long were you there for? I was, I was never there. Oh, I mean, I was there I did a master's at there a at NYU So oh, yeah.
1: yeah so I was So you know the feeling Yeah, Martin it's... and I lived there together for yeah. two and a half almost three years It's yeah, the place two, where two you
0: know, a friend of mine has this who does live there says it's the place where people come to be their best selves whether they know it or not That's just <laughs> what happens um, And we had this place on West 73rd and Kate lived there and I would that was my pied-a-terre It was, it was lovely for three months yeah. But we go back and it's still there and we're not and you realize very quickly that uh, nostalgia is a fond memory of the things that you did do, and melancholy is the regret for the things that you didn't do. Right. And somehow, he has put both of them into the film, into, specifically into Sunset, in that moment when Jesse tells her about seeing her. We get his nostalgia for the thing that he did do, the experience he did have, even though it was with the wrong person. And we can watch the melancholy play on her face at the same time. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a film anywhere else. Maybe on stage you can do it. But it requires so much knowledge of the characters. And the movie has to be so patient to get to that point. The time it takes for that story to be told to pay off in that moment. I've never seen anything else like it. And it's an incidental moment. It's not even important really in the film that we're watching. It's just a throwaway.
1: But you don't but forget it. No, it's it's just I it's, don't forget that moment yeah. or that story or that and, and because we kind of take or I took a deep breath. It was like Yeah. There she was. Yeah. She was waiting for him. I mean she wasn't, but but yeah. It's like she
0: was right there. Yeah. It's as close as cinema gets to revelation. Mm. Uh, without any effects, without any trickery. The only special effect is that these characters were in a movie nine years ago. And it's just, to think of it, to get to that point, to have, I don't know whose idea it was, which actor or Linklater came up with the idea of, oh, you know what, maybe they did bump into each other almost. And to come up with it, but you know, the echo is the Susan Cain story—the little throwaway line about how there's not a what, not a month goes by that I don't think of that girl that someone saw a, at a port once, <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. thirty years yeah, ago. Yeah.
0: But they found a way to actually make us understand what it would have been like, both to be the guy remembering it and to be the girl, and to hold those two ideas in one space in one frame. It's like I said, I don't think people really understand exactly how monumental these films are. I mean, they will someday when everyone's trying to do it and screwing it up left and right. You know, like Now there's probably some millennial who's already quietly working on a film that is set now, but they're, oh, you know, I'm going to come back in five years. Contractually, we're going to come back every five years. There's the, up, the You have the Up documentaries, and there was a, a yeah, board of after. attempt to make an American version that never really caught. But those are documentary, and those are... Flesh and blood; those are, you know, filmmakers reacting to whatever they get. What happens in the Before trilogy is so different because it's being constructed.
1: Well, and it's very; it starts out very whimsical, mm-hmm. and you continue with the same sort of palette as you go on, sort of visually. Yeah. I mean, different spaces. I mean, I guess we start in Vienna, and then we're in Paris, and then we're in sort of this
0: bucolic, beautiful. Coast, right. a town in Greece. But, um, but they are highly romanticized versions of those places. We're you, not seeing slums, we're not seeing garbage, right. we're seeing the best possible selves.
1: But it's not... But with then, of course, you start going beyond the veneer, especially in the last one. Sure. And you realize that, yeah, it looks like an idyllic place, but it's really not. They're not in an idyllic place in their yeah, relationship, in their mind, and they're not... They yeah. It starts out whimsical, but in and in fact, you feel like it's still as whimsical as you go on. But it actually isn't whimsical. The last one, no, it at all. No. It's like hard reality, truth. The the world, the facts of day to day living are always upon us, and it's really hard to lift them off. Even even if you are away from home, whereas when they were away from home and they were young and they had no children, and they had no responsibilities, yeah. it they could live almost a dream,
0: a dream. Yeah, well when there was nothing but potential, yeah, there were yeah. no there yeah. were no drawbacks, there were no risks. Yeah. And now you have someone who has committed that he has destroyed his life to reinvent himself and he's still coping with the consequences 9 years later and you have a woman who has been, you know, as supportive as she possibly could be of this who's maybe now starting to think that she's been too supportive
1: and who also is and this uh, keeps coming up who's also that our generation of women although she's a bit younger than me but not by a lot Mm -hmm. um, I have to work that
0: out (laughs) (laughs) it's just depressing don't it
1: I just did it five minutes ago but who where there was also a lot of potential for us and then there's not as much potential as we thought there was Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of frustration around that and then where, where do we fit in in the world so not only uh, and that keeps coming up um, in her conversations uh, with Jesse um, as all of the films go, yeah, on. Yeah, and it particularly so. explodes at the end, not only in her relationship with him, but it also looks at the bigger world. And I think that that's what's interesting too, because again, it's like taking the minutiae of everyday life and um, sort of looking at it through the lens of a relationship. Yeah. and how it affects us and how it affects the relationship. And I think that's also how we, why we relate to it because we understand all the sort of minutiae around their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this is why I'm, I'm just... I'm fascinated by... I, I said earlier I'm fascinated by the idea of seeing Midnight Cold. But I'm also kind of amazed and repelled at the possibility of watching all three films for the first time together. You know, without the passage of time. I actually believe that you know, if you watched, if you're only watching these for the first time, if you're watching before sunset, or sorry, if you're watching before sunrise for the first time, and you've never seen the other two, you shouldn't be allowed to watch the next one for nine years. You should actually be mandated with a time. <laughs> oh, lock.
1: that's cruel! Well, but that's cruel. Otherwise,
0: the I mean, the experience of watching Boyhood is very, very different from the experience of watching these two films as they were meant to be released. Absolutely, in, in, Absolutely. In that, With with space, with time, you need to change before you can see really see how other characters are changing well i do love that aspect but when i
1: I actually saw i didn't see um before sunrise until after i'd seen the other two really yeah oh wow i did not see that one first which i wish i had although it doesn't really matter because it's so fancy and free and you know it's a very liberating film in a lot of ways And, and and it definitely makes me think of my youth and falling in love and the freedom around that. So, um, and and the feeling of being uncomfortable at the same time, mm-hmm. but excited. Sure. it's like uncomfortable but excited, and that's what you see there, you know, in that with them between the two of them. Uh, but yes, I saw the other two first. Wow. So, and what were the circumstances? Uh, I mean, when did you see sunset? You know, I I, I probably saw sunset. I don't know, like ten years ago, or you know, maybe when it came out, I saw. Roughly when it yeah, roughly yeah, probably, and then I saw um, before midnight when it came out. Okay, you know, and then I made sure I went and saw the first one, and I I don't know how I missed, you know. Sometimes you just miss things, you know. You just kind of like, and I was um, yeah. So I didn't see them actually in order the first time. that's remarkable. So I love seeing them in order now, again. Because I remembered each of them, but, you know. um, And I've probably seen... I don't know. I've probably seen Sunset a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, Just because it just... I probably did. I don't know why. And I found um, Before Midnight hard to watch. I still found it hard to watch again. I still... I love it. I believe it. I relate to it, but it's still hard to watch. I'm still closer to there than I am to the others. (laughs) You know, which is also maybe why you feel that you need that time. Yeah. Because as a person, you're watching it at different stages. And there's something really wonderful when you feel like your life is being reflected on screen.
0: Yeah. It is kind of incredible to to be um, just in that pocket when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And Watching, yeah, so I think if I have to pick a favorite, Sunset's probably my favorite, because it is, it's still optimistic, they all are, but but it's the most gratifying, because watching it the second time, you know it's going to be okay. <laughs> the first time was, was just heart-in-mouth terror that it wasn't going to work, or that this would be another sort of melancholy ending where they promised to meet again, and one or the other of them is a little more committed, and you just know it's not going to however that was going to work. Uh, But Midnight is, while ultimately uplifting, it's almost too real. I don't want them to be unhappy. I don't want them to be mean to each other. It's just not right. And it's not something that had happened in the other two films. So when it actually goes there, when you realize that you're going to be trapped in space with them as they're having this real, unrelenting fight, it's just too painful. Um, because I've spent 20 years pulling for these kids and <laughs> I just don't want it to fall apart and I can watch and now with the knowledge of what happens next and how it comes out that's fine I can watch it again but it is really more about a type of cruelty to the audience to trap us with these and again that's something that no one's really tried before um, when you're dealing with Overwhelming emotional drama, there's usually some sort of stylization or some way in. Or it's Mike Lee who's made you empathize with people that you'd never otherwise know. But what Linklater does is. Yeah, I forgot about Mike
1: Lee. I love Mike Lee too. I didn't forget about him. I mean, I in reference, this film didn't... No, um, it doesn't hit the, any of those buttons. It doesn't hit those buttons, although I, I have to say he's one of my very favorites. Also just his naturalistic and mm-hmm. the subject matter he deals with and the relationships. And But yeah, yeah. but he doesn't hit those buttons. He has very different... Yeah. Different,
0: uh, There's, I mean, the only film of his that sort of comes up in my mind in relation to what happens in Before Midnight and the way that it handles emotion is All or Nothing, where it is devoted to... Like, the last two reels are just that excruciating conversation between a long-married couple about whether or not they're going to keep at this.
1: Yeah, I should... Uh, but
0: it comes from a different place.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he has a little more sense of humor in some ways. Like, more pointed. His his humor, his, although I love humor, but yeah, it's a little but, more pointed. But
0: the films themselves are uh, it, are more uh, self-aware, I suppose, yes. in terms of their comic moments? Yep, yeah, yeah. And nothing in Linklater's films, at least... At least they films. are funny. I mean, there's moments that are funny, but they're only funny
1: because those the couple's... Things they say to each other are funny. Yeah, everything
0: is from character rather it, than direction.
1: Direction or from in situ, the situation. Mm-hmm. It's not sort of... Yeah. No, it's very interesting that yeah. way.
0: Yeah. So uh, the, this brings us to the, the, key, the key creative question, uh, I suppose, which is what of these films has you borrowed or stolen or lifted? Is there any part of Linklater's Before Trilogy that's made it into your creative DNA? It's okay if there isn't.
1: No, but I would say, okay, here's what I would say. Okay, I would say that Romare, yes. Okay. And I always wanted to do Romare films for a long time. And, uh, or I thought of it, and in fact, the irony is, I wrote, um, I, did, I started in drama and ended up in documentary, whatever, that's another story, but okay. I did write a script that actually didn't get made, but I wrote it with my husband because we used to write together when we were doing drama. It was called Neil and Beth, um, and it was basically, it took place in a day um, on the sidewalk okay. as they walked around Toronto.
0: It was back in the similarly 80s. Philosophically yeah
1: it was involved? Yeah, it was and it it dealt with actually, I mean this is sort of before people were doing very much around um, mental illness, but um, I'd spent a lot of time because my brother had was in the Clark and had uh, I spent a lot of time at the Clark myself okay. uh, visiting him and um, and hanging out with him and and my husband and I both did and um, so she the character was on a day pass. Okay. And that was her husband, and um, so it was a husband and wife, and they walked around. and And I honestly, it, it was a Romare, It was Romare's work that really, um, I think, to a large extent, inspired me to, um, and of course, my own personal history. Sure. You know, with family history, uh, to write that. But um, but we never actually did that one. So. Hmm. Yeah, and then I kind of steered myself into documentary and was started doing things and having a fantastic time, and so I just kind of yeah, and that one wasn't going to happen at that point. You know, right. we had developed it, and I, I could see that it would take longer. So, but uh, yeah, I'd have to say Romare, I think I've always had a great deal of respect. So, um, Linklater, I think is very similar in in sort of the visceral feel of his work. Mm-hmm. And um, and the comments he makes on society through the characters yeah. and their relationships and the feelings. So that's why I love Linklater so much. Man. And the European sort of sensibility, I love it without it being pretentious. Also, sure, his films aren't pretentious, Linklater. They're they're just so naturalistic. And there's moments in Sunrise, maybe, uh, yeah. because they're young.
0: Yeah, but there's but you can believe that the movie is showing us the way they see the world, so that's okay.
1: But that's okay, yeah. yeah. You absolutely buy into it, or I bought into it for sure. I mean, I, I'm excited to hear that. And I studied uh, philosophy as an undergrad, science and philosophy, but mostly philosophy. So, you know, I love hearing people talk about, you know, how they see the world and what they think is real and not real and... It's, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting for young people. So in a way, in some ways, I, li- I love that. As my- I don't want to say that that would be my favorite one, um, mm-hmm. Sunrise, but I, um, I think Sunrise and Midnight are probably my favorites. Midnight only because it's so painful and so real. And yes, I'm trapped. And no, I don't want to be there. But at the same time, I just really, really relate to it. And I, I find the film is just so layered. Um, texturally and um, you know I- image wise and everything else that I and the fact that they actually go get through it yeah. I think they get through that tunnel that dark tunnel and I, I really appreciate that it's a lot of hard work Yeah, I mean we see it happen in one fight for them so I really yeah. I, and then the middle one I love too because it just everything's collapsed in the middle and we just we
0: sort of learn to look to the
1: future and also the past in the moment
0: yeah There are no wrong answers, right? Like, it's just, it is that good as a work. And while I said that I don't need another one, I kind of want one just to see in nine years' time what he comes up with and what Hawk and Delby want to do and where they want to go. I'm with them. I'm pulling for them.
1: Well, me too. And I think it's a little prescient that there might be because the, the older couple in, in uh, Before Midnight mm-hmm. at the table talking about their loves and their past and their remembering and their memories. And the, the older woman remembers. You know, she starts, she's forgetting her husband because he's been gone for a while. So she starts remembering every single detail about him. And that helps her feel in the moment with him. And then, you know, like the daylight comes and it dispels yeah. her image of him it's a it's just a it's a wonderful kind of speech or whatever monologue that she has but um sometimes i think that that's maybe As you know, a, know what to expect what
0: to expect something yeah.
1: there i'm not sure
0: my terror though is that inevitably if you keep doing this long enough you're going to end up with a moor you're going to get you know <laughs> it'll turn into haneke and you'll be trapped with them at the end of their lives and i don't I do want to see them keep doing this until they're old and grey because that means I get to spend more time with Celine and Jesse and that's all I really want in a weird way. But at the same time I know that Linklater is too smart to just give me what I want. He's gonna give me what the characters need. Right, because he didn't give me what I wanted yeah. in before midnight. I didn't want that. Yeah, exactly. I wanted... You wanted to... Sunrise. You wanted to sit them... You wanted to see them sitting on a Greek island eating shellfish and enjoying life. Yeah. Because that's what you want. And that's not what you get. That's not what life is.
1: No. And I think that the film would have um, been forgettable then. Yeah. So, yeah, Amour, that was a very sad, tragic kind of film, but it was,
0: I mean, it had its own dark beauty. Oh, it's a great film. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm afraid that that's what's in store for Celine and Jesse if we keep making them come back. Yeah. Uh, so I think ultimately, I mean, again, it's Richard Linklater. I trust him more than I trust almost anybody. And with these characters, I trust him, period. Totally. Uh, and as long as Hawk and, and Delpy are willing to do it and let them. I'm, Let I'm, do I'm it. perfectly fine. It's you know. Let's start the Kickstarter now. Uh, <laughs> but
1: threes are good. Threes are good. Threes are a good Something package, Something nice about right? a trilogy. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, either way, you know, Selene and Jesse forever. That's
1: all. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Mm.
0: My thanks to Maureen Judge, whose new documentary, My Millennial Life, is streaming online at tvo.org right now. Just go to the website and enter the title in the search bar. You can find Maureen on Twitter at Maureen Judge, all one word, and you can find the Before Trilogy on DVD in individual editions from Warner, Warner, and Sony, respectively. Before Midnight is also available on Blu-ray from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment in a special-ish edition. They're also available on iTunes and Google Play, but honestly, uh, hold out for the special box set edition, which is almost certainly going to be announced sooner rather than later. Let's just go with that. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Uh, let's go with... oh, I got it. This week's call sign is, they're going to be fine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>